Scripture reading this afternoon comes first from Genesis chapter 1. Both of our readings are in connection with the doctrine of creation, which will be our topic this this afternoon as we work our way through the Heidelberg Catechism. Genesis 1, we'll read that chapter. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together He called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So far from Genesis. Let's also turn now briefly to the New Testament, to the second letter of Peter. Second Peter chapter 3. 
2 Peter 3, we'll read verses 1 through 10. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So far, the reading of God's Word. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 104, stanzas 1, 2, and 6. Every Lord's Day in the afternoon service, we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism, a summary of Christian doctrine and the Christian faith. We find ourselves this afternoon in Lord's Day 9. That's on page 525 of your books of praise. There the question is, what do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth? That the Eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and all that is in them, and who still upholds and governs them by His eternal counsel and providence, is for the sake of Christ His Son, my God and my Father. In Him I trust so completely as to have no doubt that He will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul, and will also turn to my good whatever adversity He sends me in this life of sorrow. He is able to do so as Almighty God, and willing also as a faithful Father. So far, the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, last week when we started our study of the Apostles' Creed, dealing first with the, 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 the Trinity, which provides the framework for the Apostles' Creed, uh, I opened that sermon just by remembering with you the purpose for which we're here in the first place. And I want to do that again now as we start looking at the first article of the Apostles' Creed. It's good to keep in mind What's our goal? Why are we here? Uh, And the whole point of this study of of these basic doctrines, doctrines we're familiar with, and yet we study them again, the whole point of this study is to give us the opportunity to grow in the knowledge of God and in the understanding of our faith so as to be able to live our lives more fully and die more confidently in the joy of that faith. That's coming right back from Lord's Day 1. What do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? And and it recites several things we want to know, we want to learn, grow, study in order to do that. So we want to keep that in mind as well. We will not reach maturity to which Christ calls us, to which the Apostle Paul over and over calls us. We will not reach that maturity except by grounding ourselves deeply in the knowledge of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and all that they have done for us. You can spend a lifetime growing with much, much to learn and understand. Uh, With that in mind, then, we turn to the Apostles' Creed, which is the Christian church's oldest and most succinct summary of the Christian faith. 
Uh, The Apostle Creed begins with the statement, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Uh, So we see here, in the oldest Christian confession, the very first foundational assertion there is that we believe in God. That's, that's, where, that's our starting point. We believe in God. We're not atheists. We're not polytheists. We believe in one God, and that God is the creator of heaven and earth. Now, that conviction is not just the, the, the first statement in the oldest Christian creed. It's also the first statement in Scripture itself. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything follows from that first statement. Uh, Those are the very first words of of Scripture. So the point that I want to observe with you this afternoon is, uh, is very simple. Without biblical creation, you cannot have Christianity. Without biblical creation, you cannot have Christianity. Uh, Now, I'm aware that's a very controversial point. Uh, There are many Christian churches and organizations that have rejected a biblical view of creation and still regard themselves as Christian churches or Christian organizations. The goal for this afternoon, though, is to show from Scripture why that cannot be the case, or at least cannot consistently be the case. One cannot have a Christian church consistently and sustainably that denies these these doctrines of creation. Now I want to start then by identifying the elephant in the room. Uh, Up until about 200 years ago, uh, there was no debate among Christian theologians, pastors, churches on this point. From the church fathers all the way through the medieval times, through the Reformation, and 200 years after that, there was total agreement uh, that, that God created the world in six days. Now, there were, there were sometimes theologians, uh, occasionally, a few who had slightly wrong views about this. Uh, most famously, uh, the church fathers, Augustine and Origen, they both felt that it was beneath God to take as long as six days to make the earth. Uh, and so they, they went the opposite direction that you see uh, people going today. And they said, maybe God created it all in one day. Uh, and, and then just called it six. Uh, but even though they, they messed with the numbering there, they still believed, this is important, they still believed in the, the, in the literal events of the creation story, that God did these things in this way, in this order. Uh, and they also held to a young earth, uh, an earth that was six to 10,000 years old, and that, in spite of many in their culture, thinking especially of the Greek and Roman times, in their culture not holding to that view. They still held to that. Today, however, uh, biblical uh, young earth or, or six-day creationism is very quickly becoming a minority view in, in the Christian church, at least here in the West. It's, it's not the case uh, elsewhere in the world, but here in the West, this is becoming a minority view. Well, what happened? Well, what happened is scientific establishments have come to hold a radically different view of this earth and this earth's history. Uh, 233 years ago, 1785, uh, there was a certain geologist named James Hutton. Uh, no relation, as far as I know, to anyone in this church, but we won't hold it against you if, if there is. Uh, he, he published a book promoting this concept of uniformitarianism. Now, this was the idea that the earth as we know it was actually not that, is actually not that young, but was formed over many millions of years through gradual processes. This was the first uh, person to publish this idea. And among the academic elites, that idea became very quickly very popular, especially when there was another geologist, uh, Charles Lyell, who published his uh, Principles of Geology in 1830. Then came Charles Darwin, a name that's a household name in in our culture, who published The Origin of Species. He took this idea of uniformitarianism, gradual changes over millions of years, and applied it also to uh, the species that you find here on Earth. And he promoted this idea that every modern species, including us, human beings, uh, have evolved by natural processes over millions of years. 
Uh, it wasn't an entirely new idea, and this is an important point I'll come back to. It wasn't a brand new idea. In fact, his own grandfather had, had long been teaching this idea that species also evolved over millions of years. Darwin, though, was, was uh, unique and, and important because he proposed a mechanism by which that works. And that's what we now know of as the theory of evolution, uh, that, that mutations plus natural selection have created all these species. That's the driver for, for change. Uh, in our day, in our culture, these two theories, uniformitarianism and uh, Darwinian evolution, are now... 200 years later, firmly entrenched in academia. Uh, Today, uh, the vast majority of modern scientists believe that the earth is much, much older than the biblical timescale and that all modern species have descended from one single form of life. That's what we're up against. That's the reason why this belief has so quickly dwindled. Uh, This this belief in, in biblical creation has so quickly dwindled here in the church in the West. And this presents a huge challenge to us as Christians because the fact is, most of us are not scientists. Most of us don't know how to navigate these questions. And to, to many of us, it feels like it takes a great deal of bravado and even arrogance to say that the scientists must be wrong. Um, and to some extent, uh, the truth is, they do know what they're talking about. Scientists do know what they're talking about. They can cite the evidence. As any of us who, young people, we go to university, we very quickly find out. They know the facts. They know the evidence. They're, they're capable of citing it. Uh, so it leaves us with a dilemma. We cannot wage a war, an all-out war, against science. You can't win. Uh, that's like waging a war against gravity. You can't win against science. Science is, is, is simply fact. But the Genesis accounts seem to be telling a very different story than what we find in science, uh, or so we're told. So it seems that either we reject science or we reject Scripture. You feel the dilemma there that that many of us here uh, will feel. Now, many of you might know the name of Matt Walsh, uh, a popular uh, blogger, not loved by everyone. Uh, A few months ago, he he published a podcast uh, where he explained why he also does not hold to six-day creation. I want to quote his words here. Uh, He said, In order to defend the six-day creationist view... We must essentially reject the fields of modern astronomy, cosmology, geology, and biology. We must declare that all but a very tiny fraction of experts in these fields are all deluded fools. And we must wage an all-out war on modern science. The truth is, that's how many of us feel. We feel stuck in this dilemma. The solution that's put forward by many churches, many institutions today is that Instead of rejecting scripture or rejecting science, perhaps there are ways we can harmonize the two. We don't have to believe in six-day creation. Maybe we can reinterpret Genesis to make it fit what Charles Lyell and what Charles Darwin were teaching. Uh, So we can accept that the earth is millions of years old. It happened through, it formed through gradual processes that species too formed through many millions of years through through natural selection and, and, and mutations. And we can simply find a new way to read Genesis. I trust that at least uh, some of you will feel the force of that argument. It seems to take the problem away. Uh, and the most common approach to this is to suggest uh, that, that Genesis is really teaching theological truths, not metaphysical or scientific truths. Uh, sometimes the argument goes that Genesis is poetry, not historical narrative. Uh, or at least it's, it's some other genre that we don't have to take literally. The, the slogan that's often repeated is, is Genesis uh, was never intended to be a science textbook. And that's, that's obviously true. Uh, the question that I want to consider with you then is, can we do this? Can we reinterpret Genesis and find a way to harmonize these two? And if not, how else can we approach this dilemma? Do we have to be anti-science? 
Well, instead of going straight to the details of, of Genesis 1, we'll get there. I want to think first about the bigger picture with you and ask, how does Genesis, especially Genesis 1, affect everything else that we believe? If this is the first sentence in Scripture, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, it's the first statement in the Apostles' Creed, what happens if we change it? What does that affect If our goal is to grow in Christian maturity, and that's why we're here, that's why we do this, uh, then that's a question we need to be thinking about. Not just, does the text allow us to interpret it differently, but thinking more deeply, what's at stake if we did? What else in our faith is is changed, is uh, affected, is is, uh, different? Genesis is the book of origins, the book of beginnings. In fact, that's what the name of Genesis means. It comes from the Greek word for, for origins. And it's not surprising then that this, the question of origins, is where Scripture also begins, because that's actually where every religion and every worldview begins. Uh, with the questions, who are we? How did we get here? What are we here for? And why do we exist? Uh, These are the most basic questions that every worldview needs to answer. And every worldview will answer them in different ways. Uh, Every group of humanity in any part of the world, you can find the most remote uh, village uh, somewhere off in the jungle, and they too will have their answers to these questions. And everything about the way you live your life follows from those questions. Who am I? Why am I here? How did I get here? Where did I come from? And why am I here? Uh, There are are many different worldviews. There are pantheist worldviews that say that we and and all of the universe are are part of God eternally existing in some form. Uh, There are worldviews that that say that we and everything in the universe are an illusion. That we don't actually exist. uh, That that it's, it's all in our minds. There's the materialist worldview of our culture that says that we are nothing but matter, atoms and molecules bouncing around, and and that's all the universe is. That all things spiritual, good and evil, right and wrong, love and hatred, even the very notion of a soul are are merely illusions. That's the materialist worldview. And, And one could go on and list many, many other worldviews, but these are the basic questions that every worldview asks. Uh, Who are we? Where did we come from? Why are we here? Uh, And as you can imagine, how you answer those questions has a profound impact on everything else that you understand about your life. Well, the Christian faith begins with the affirmation that we and this universe are the creation of God. Genesis 1 verse 1 again, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. What that means is God is eternal. God is indeed outside of time itself. Those very first three words, in the beginning God. There's no in the beginning something happened and then there was God. It's in the beginning there was God. And God acted from the beginning. Uh, So God has always been there. Uh, in, in the beginning, then, God created heavens, uh, the heavens and the earth. So this universe is not eternal. It is the creation of an eternal God. And so are we. Now, that's the most basic affirmation of the Christian faith. It's a conviction that we share with, with Jews, that we share with Muslims as well. Uh, these are offshoots of, of Christianity, uh, sects, cults. Uh, and it's, it's the most basic affirmation of our faith and stands behind everything else that we believe. Uh, for example, because we are God's creation, we are accountable to our creator. There's the notion of, of sin. Uh, this, is, uh, this is where we get morality, the standards of right and wrong. What determines right and wrong? Well, the creator does. The universe doesn't. The creator does, but the universe will reflect who the creator is. Uh, Genesis 1 also teaches us who we are. We are made in God's image. As human beings, we have special dignity. Uh, our, our lives are sacred. Uh, this, is what, this is what gives us worth. And all of these things that are foundational for our faith. Uh, we also learn foundational truths about God in Genesis chapter 1. You learn about the goodness of God. It's repeated over and over and over in the chapter. God created, saw that it was good. 
You see the goodness of God. Uh, You learn about the kindness of God, creating a good world and then placing man within it as a blessing and then giving man all all the trees bearing fruit as a gift to mankind, there's the kindness of God. There are other other religions that don't at all see their gods as kind, as as good. Uh, many of them are evil. Many of them are cruel to to mankind. Uh, you you learn there also about the nature of marriage. This is more from from Genesis chapter two, uh, but there there we learn about the, the roles of of man and wife. You learn about who we are as as men and women. Uh, the Lord Jesus in the New Testament, every time he spoke about marriage, he went right back to Genesis. Say, this is how God created us. Therefore, man leaves his father and mother and is, is one flesh with his wife. Uh, we learn about our purpose here on earth. That question, why are we here? Uh, God says to attend the earth, to cultivate it while living in relationship with him. Uh, we learn about the righteousness of God. Uh, declaring as a lawgiver what is right, what is wrong, what man may do, what man may not do. In Genesis 3, you learn about the fall into sin. Uh, How how did evil come into this world? Where did all the brokenness in this world come from? Uh, Paul says in Romans 8, referring right back to Genesis, that the entire creation was subjected to futility as a result of man's sin. The wages of sin is death. Uh, You are dust, says God in Genesis 3, and to dust you shall return. And and all of these things, we could go on, but all of these things set the stage for the Christian faith. You lose any one of these things, the Christian faith no longer makes any sense. Uh, you, You can't have Christ coming, dying for sinners, if there is no concept of sin. If there is no concept of us having fallen into sin. Uh, There also in Genesis, uh, as you move forward in the chapters, you learn about God's first covenant made with man, promising to send a Savior, promising to crush the head of Satan. Uh, Genesis 7 and 8, you learn of the flood, of course, uh, a global flood that covered the whole earth, uh, by which ancient earth and primeval uh, humanity was, was judged uh, and so there too, you learn of something of the, the judgment of God. And Peter, we read this uh, in Second Peter three. Peter, when he speaks of the judgment of God, what does he refer back to? He refers to that first judgment of God. Uh, the heavens existed long ago, he says, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Uh, so, so how do we know that God will judge the world? One, because he said so, and two, because he's done it before, uh, as, he, as he said. Uh, Genesis 11, you learn of the origin of human languages uh, by which humanity was scattered over the earth, setting the stage for Pentecost, where they, the nations are gathered together again uh, in the kingdom of Christ. And, and one could say much, much more, but what's clear then is Genesis the book of origins not only addresses these most foundational questions that every worldview must, who are we, where do we come from, why are we here, but also provides the other many foundations on which the Christian faith stands. If God was not our creator, we would not be bound to his law. If God was not lawgiver and judge, you can't speak of sin, you can't speak of of judgment, and Christ's death becomes meaningless. Moreover, this is a key one, If brokenness, misery, and death, which we certainly experience, if those are not the result of the sin of our forefathers, then what did Christ come to save us from, and why does his death matter? These are the foundations of our faith. Uh, So do Christians have to believe in six-day creation? That's the question that's often asked. Do we have to? Uh, Can you be a Christian and not hold to to six-day creation? Perhaps it's the wrong question to ask. One might instead ask, how much of our faith stands or falls on the doctrine that God created the world in six days? Or even more, uh, what stands or falls on the chapter as a whole? Or even more, what stands or falls on the book as as a whole? You lose the first chapter, or you edit out the first chapter to reinterpret it and say, this isn't historical, it's only theological. What do you do to the rest of the book on which our faith stands. Without Genesis, you have no Christian faith. 
Now, these seminaries and institutions and organizations that would seek to harmonize Genesis with modern secular science will say, well, we're not trying to throw away the book as a whole. Um, rather, they say, we're just suggesting that maybe, suggesting, we're, we're, we're saying that maybe Genesis 1 might be interpreted as either poetry or some kind of symbolic history that teaches theological and not metaphysical truths. Now, that in itself is hardly honest, because these same institutions, uh, if you keep going forward in Genesis... They will question, for example, are Adam and Eve the only ancestors of the human race? They will question Genesis 7, was there really a worldwide flood? They will question Genesis 11, was the Tower of Babel really the origin of all human languages? Uh, They will continue to question right on into Exodus, did God really take his people out of Egypt? The archaeological evidence isn't there, and so on and so forth. But even if we just stick to Genesis 1, it's, it's simply nonsense to speak of truths that are theological and not metaphysical. What does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. Uh, this is what, what liberal theologians did a century ago with, with Exodus. They said the, the Exodus out of Egypt was, was a theological uh, account, not a, not a historical or factual account. So what does it mean then? Uh, if, if they're saying it proves that God is a great savior, how? He didn't save anyone. He didn't take anyone out of Egypt. What kind of great savior is he? If these are, if, if these are not metaphysical truths or historical truths, they're, they're useless as theological truths. If God didn't create the earth as he said, it doesn't prove a thing about who we are, where we come from, why we're here. And so then with these first six days of Genesis 1, it is unmistakably written as historical narrative, which is why for the first 1,800 years of Christian theology, not to mention the, the 1,500 years of Jewish theology before that, these books have always been taken as historical, describing the literal creation of the real physical universe. And everywhere else in Scripture, these chapters are understood and necessarily understood as literal historical truths. Uh, For example, when Moses gave the Ten Commandments, uh, and, and the Fourth Commandment in particular, to rest on the Sabbath, it was because God rested on the seventh day. Uh, We have a seven-day week because God created the world in a seven-day week. Uh, Likewise, when the Lord Jesus again taught about marriage, uh, he based his teachings on the literal historical facts of God having made man and woman for one another. Uh, Likewise with Paul, uh, when he spoke about marriage, or again now with Peter, as he speaks of judgment, he gives proof of judgment in the fact, the historical literal fact that God judged the earth once before. So this attempt that you'll see all over uh, modern Christian institutions, uh, this attempt to regard the creation account as somehow not literal or not necessarily literal uh, is a desperate attempt to harmonize what cannot be harmonized. Scripture will not be harmonized with Darwinian evolution nor with uh, uniformitarianism. It simply teaches a different history. And the amazing thing is, well, not really amazing, uh, the, the obvious thing is that every unbelieving scholar, those who don't, try to, who don't need to fit the two together, they recognize the attempt to do so as, as, as silly. They recognize it cannot work. Uh, Those who would take Genesis 1, then, to be poetry or to be symbolic history need to reckon with the fact that there's no cutoff between Genesis 1 and 2 or Genesis 1 and 3 or Genesis 1 and Exodus 1 or anywhere else in Scripture. What begins as historical truth carries on through Scripture as historical truth. There's there's no point you can identify where the the so-called poetry ends and the history begins. It's just not, not there. 
Hebrew grammarians also will, will readily point to the fact that the grammatical forms, even of the verbs used, are forms that are reserved for history. Uh, they, they only serve in historical narrative. Uh, so the attempts to, to interpret it as anything else are an exercise, if I may say it boldly, they're an exercise in unbelief. There is no way to make these two harmonize. And, and that matters. That, that's a point that matters because if we say we're going to do so anyways, we're going to harmonize them anyways, whether they want to or not, what we end up doing is pretending that there's no problem here and really we're sacrificing the reliability of Scripture. We're saying I'm going to accept science and I'm going to make Scripture agree with science whether it does or not. And one generation can pull that off the next generation knows perfectly well what's going on, and they will choose one or the other. And that's why it often happens that one generation will, will live in a compromise between uh, the compromise of theistic evolution, accepting both. The next generation will altogether reject the Bible because they know these two are not compatible. And indeed, nearly every book and every institution that tries to do this, you can find it right in the introduction, the preface to these books, that the motive, the real issue for putting these books together is to harmonize Scripture and and science because, as they always say, we cannot reject science. It's not because we cannot reject Scripture. It's because we cannot reject science. That must go first. And there's truth to it. It's true. We cannot reject science. We do live in God's world. There is only one truth. And the scientists are not deluded fools. They they do know to some extent what they're talking about. And yet they are wrong. They're wrong. They're not in agreement with Scripture. It's a tragedy that so many Christians today are so ill-informed, so ill-equipped with the basic tools to discern between that which is science and that which is philosophy, that which is science and that which is even religion, Uh, between, to use the technical terms, between operational and observational science. Operational, doing science. Observational, taking data and coming up with explanations for it. Uh, Another way to describe it, historical and forensic uh, uh, science. The, uh, it's, it's, it's sad that, that so many Christians don't understand the difference between evidence, which is certainly there. We live in God's world. Evidence and the interpretations of evidence uh, that, that underlie these, uh, these uh, beliefs. It's a tragedy that so many Christians lack the basic critical thinking skills and then jump on board with secular science, which they don't fully even understand, and say we must therefore compromise Scripture or reject it altogether. This is, what, uh, this is why so many Christians uh, don't know what the differences even are between biblical creation and Darwinian evolution. Uh, there, are all, there are assumptions all over. There are equivocations, like, like evolution is the changing of living things. Don't we see that on earth? Well, therefore, it must be true. It's a terrible equivocation. Uh, as if somehow creationists disagree that, that things change over time. It, it really is a tragedy, uh, to put it bluntly, that so many Christians cower before uh, secular scientific establishments as if their PhDs automatically make them right. And amazingly, that these same Christians will be found heaping scorn and ridicule upon equally brilliant, equally educated, equally, uh, equally degreed scientists with their own PhDs who hold the biblical creation. That they say, these people are Neanderthals, they don't understand science. And yet these people, because of their PhDs, do. They both have PhDs. Uh, It's sad that, uh, that, that so many Christians think it's the height of arrogance for us to dare disagree with the secular science, scientific establishments, and then act like the thousands, thousands of PhD scientists 
who, who would dare to disagree with them, scientists in astronomy, in cosmology, in geology, in paleontology, in biology, genetics, on and on and on, who hold to creation, uh, to biblical creation, to act like they are somehow now deluded fools. It's the height of arrogance. If we're not scientists, that's fine. But then let's not pretend like those who are on the other side are deluded fools. Uh, It's sad that their their brilliance, their accomplishments, their expertise is routinely ignored and even ridiculed. And why? Because apparently science and philosophy are now decided by consensus. Because the world says it happened this way, and the world has PhDs, and therefore we must accept it. That's a tragedy that Christians have so little esteem for the word of God. And it's a tragedy, too, that uh, perhaps even of greater proportions, that so many Christian schools ultimately then hire teachers of science who fail to understand these basic distinctions, and many who even are, are willing to accept these kinds of compromises. And it's no surprise that so many young people leave the church year after year because they recognize what we so often refuse to admit, that that secular scientific establishments and scripture are telling two different stories. You can't have them both. It will be one or the other. We can harmonize all we want. We can get into the Hebrew and make it say things that it doesn't say. Uh, We can act like uh, there's, there's really no difference under the surface. But our children are not stupid. They'll get the difference. It does matter because truth matters and the truthfulness and reliability of the Word of God matters. Darwinian evolution does not harmonize, and if we accept it, we will ultimately reject Scripture. So, brothers and sisters, what's the way forward? Well, the way forward involves, in the first place, as Christians, and it's not the first time we've had to do this, as Christians standing in faith on the truthfulness of the Word of God. It's what every generation before us has also had to do. And that's what faith is. That's what faith does. If you only believe God's word when it's easy to believe, that's not faith. Uh, Abraham didn't leave his, his home in Ur of the Chaldeans and go follow God to a land he didn't know with the promise of offspring that he was already too old to have because it was something that was easy to believe, that it fit with what he saw. It didn't, but he followed God in faith. Uh, The Christians of the first century didn't lay down their lives for Christ because it was the easy thing to do or or because it was easy to reject the, the secular pagan paradigms of their day. It was hard. You would be laughed at. You would be scorned. We saw that even in, in uh, Acts 15 earlier this morning, uh, that you will be ridiculed for standing uh, on the truth of Scripture and rejecting the pagan worldview. Uh, Paul was laughed at for believing in the resurrection. In his day, that was ludicrous. Uh, get used to it. You will be laughed at. Secondly, if we're ever going to get a handle on this issue, we need to develop some basic critical thinking skills as Christians to discern between what is science, which belongs to God. Science is God's. Uh, is a, uh, science is, is something that comes out of God's good created world. This is my Father's world. There's nothing wrong with science. We must distinguish between what is science and what is philosophy. What is evidence in God's world, and what is interpretation of that evidence that does not come from faith. Uh, between operational and forensic sciences. Uh, when, when Darwin first put forward his theory, I said I'd come back to this, when Darwin first put forward his theory, it wasn't like he had this scientific discovery that radically shook his faith. No, since his grandfather's day, he already believed in Darwinian evolution. He just came up with a way to explain it. The philosophy was first. The explanation came second. That's important because that's not good science. That's not how uh, it should work. Uh, for, For several generations already, Darwin's family, at best, could be described as deists. They weren't biblical creationists who suddenly discovered that it doesn't work. 
they were deists. They believed, yes, in a God who created the world uh, somehow. They already believed the earth was millions of years old. That was already taught in, in their day. Uh, and they believed that this God, whoever he was, is detached from creation. You, he, he doesn't touch his creation. Uh, he leaves everything to these, these natural processes. It wasn't a radical discovery that shook his faith. It was, uh, it was an explanation that confirmed what he already believed. And that's where the issue lies. Uh, The explanation of the evidence is given to support a worldview that is already held. And that's not science. Uh, That's true for Charles Lyell. That's true for Charles Darwin. In fact, it's as true today as it ever was. In fact, science, as it's conducted today, holds as an a priori, that means automatic assumed uh, assumption, uh, to to be redundant, uh, an a priori assumption that all the phenomena we observe must have a natural explanation. It must. That's that's just the assumption right out of the box. Uh, If that's the case, of course you will come up with a naturalistic worldview that does not include God, because you have to. You've already agreed that that's the only thing that you will find. Uh, So as Christians, as thinkers, I think especially of the young people among us who still are going to go through college or who are struggling with these things already now, learn the difference between what is an operational science, conducting science in God's world, uh, working with God's creation, uh, and, and and a forensic science that is extremely vulnerable to already held beliefs. Uh, The goal in the forensic sciences all too often is to find an explanation that fits what you already believe. Uh, That's that's true not only of of, uh, these historical sciences involving evolution and and paleontology. It's true also of forensic sciences in in crime scenes. Uh, There, at least, they're aware of how how vulnerable they are to biases. Uh, So investigators at a crime scene, they know that one of the biggest pitfall for them is going to be to come up with an idea in their head and then all the evidence will suddenly line up with that idea. It's a dangerous pitfall. It's one that's very easy to fall for. Well, how much more when that preconceived idea is your religious worldview, uh, where you already subscribe to a God who's detached, who's far away, or to no God at all, and you hold that belief for, for spiritual reasons, for heart reasons, it's very easy to conduct science in a way that confirms and supports what you already believe. As Christians, we need to have the discernment to see that so we don't cower before what's called science and simply isn't science. Uh, we can, uh, for example, we, we are often told that we can measure the age of rocks. Well, there's no age meter on rocks. You can't measure the age of rocks. You can measure things like radioactive decay and make conclusions about what that means for the age of rocks with certain assumptions about what rates things are happening and what levels existed in the past. There's science and there's uh, assumptions that support an already held worldview. Uh, This is why, on the opposite side, scientists, uh, biblical scientists, can find things like dinosaur bones. Uh, In fact, these weren't even found by biblical scientists. They were found by secular scientists uh, that have soft tissues, even traces of hemoglobin. Things that, by any account, cannot possibly be there if the universe or or the earth is as, as old as we say. No amount of preservation can achieve that. There's the science. There's the the evidence. Now, what's the interpretation? Uh, I saw this uh, a couple years ago in the BBC as they were discussing this, and and initially they they simply rejected. They said it can't really be that they're soft tissues, and it was tested dozens of times before they came to accept that. And what's the conclusion? Is it, well, I guess they, they can't be that old. That would be a good conclusion. But no, the conclusion is, well, I guess they can be preserved that way for millions of years. There's the uh, interpretation of the evidence. So if we as Christians are ever going to get a handle on this issue and and avoid the the temptation to to discard the authority of Scripture, that takes, as, as Peter says, as he wonderfully says, that takes a little bit of girding up the loins of our mind. Uh, getting ready for action, being willy, uh, willing to think. 
uh, if we are going to understand this and turn the tide of young people leaving the church, which all too often has to do with this issue, uh, with people not uh, being able to work through this issue and not finding answers within the church, if we're going to understand that and turn that tide, we must develop the skills and train our children uh, these skills to think critically about these things and understand what's going on. Let me conclude then. The doctrine of creation is fundamental to the Christian faith. And we must believe it because God's word clearly teaches it. We saw this a few weeks ago when we looked at the question, what does faith believe? And faith believes what the word of God teaches. Uh, If the word of God teaches something clearly, we must believe it. And then we can also expect to see it borne out in the world in which we live. Uh, We do not seek the the approval or acceptance of man in how we understand God's world. Uh, So so Hebrews 11 verse 3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was was not made out of things that are visible. Uh, That's a, a doctrine we hold by faith because the word of God teaches it. Uh, The gospel of Jesus Christ, then, begins with creation. And it makes no sense without creation. Uh, No matter how how desperately the world might try to to reinterpret the evidence of God's world, uh, to suppress the knowledge of God, says Paul in in Romans 1, uh, we were nonetheless created by God, distinct from the animals, made to know our God. We have God's, uh, the, the awareness of God's presence written on our hearts and written all over the universe in which we live. And all of it testifies to the truth of God. Uh, creation shouts the glory of God, says Psalm 19. We live in God's world. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the earth proclaims His might. You and I, brothers and sisters, were made for God with the awareness of God's presence written on our hearts. And the more we see that, and the more we see it also in the world in which we live, the more we will also recognize what a terrible offense our sin is, why, God, uh, why we needed Jesus Christ to die for our sins, why God was so good to send him, and how uh, there is hope for humanity, a humanity that has suppressed God, or the knowledge of God, has rejected the knowledge of God, and yet to whom God has reached down in mercy. So stand on the truth of Scripture. These are things we must know if ever we are to understand the gospel. Don't let the rejection of others be your reason for rejecting Scripture. Uh, Don't let their rejection of what is plainly visible in the world around be the cause of your inability to see it. You were made to see the glory of God in all that God has made. See it and rejoice in it. Amen. Let's respond by singing from Psalm 96, stanzas 6 through 8.